I'm Bryce Butler from Access Ventures, and this is More Than Profit, a show where I talk with founders, investors, entrepreneurs, and leaders of all kinds about living and working with purpose, how they do it, and why. My guest this week is Johnny Price, founder of Kiva US and current director of fundraising at WeFunder. He was in town recently for some events to launch a community match fund that we established with WeFunder to incentivize the adoption of crowdfunding to support entrepreneurs' access to capital. I actually first met Johnny through a tweet uh, back in 2014. Senator Booker, the mayor of Newark, New Jersey at the time, had just announced the launch of Kiva Newark, and I sent Johnny a message to see about getting Louisville on the map. Ever since, we've been dear friends, and I love that our lives have intersected both personally and professionally. He's an impressive person that I admire as a husband, as a father, and as a leader. And I'm excited to share his story and what has shaped him through the years. A story that's included him representing his college in 14 sports, believe it or not, which was a funny aside. Soccer, cricket, tennis, ping pong, water polo, rowing, badminton, uh, go-karting, um, foosball, pool, chess, basketball, netball, and ultimate frisbee. Growing up, mm -hmm. uh, you went to Cambridge, but even before that, uh, what are some of the earliest moments you have that it kind of, as you would put it, um, or as you think about it, shaped some mm -hmm. of your, your worldview and how you think about community uh, and the role of the role of business and the role of uh, the a role of money in, in community. Yeah. So I, I think I would look at my parents. I mean, growing up, um, we were part of a church community and my mom and dad were extremely generous, I would say, in their time and in their financial resources. So my mom and dad kind of started this house, basically bought this house and were housing homeless people in there. Um, and that was a really kind of eye-opening experience, I think, for them, for me. So I think they kind of from a very early age, like instilled in me, like this um, idea that it's not really just about making money. I mean, they were both like, you know, successful financially. My mom was a doctor, my dad's an accountant. They did fine. We always had enough money, etc. cetera. Um, but uh, yeah, I think they, like that's, I, you know, spent seven years working at Kiva as a nonprofit. Now I'm working for a startup, WeFunder. I like started my career in management consulting. My salary now is probably about half what it was when I left there 10 years ago, <laughs> which is so financially, some of the career decisions I've made over the last decade have been not the wisest ones. But I think, yeah, I've made some of those decisions because, yeah, it, as the podcast name suggests, it's for me, it's about more than profit. It's about more than just making the most money possible. And I think I get that a lot from them. Uh, I then, um, before going to university, I went to teach in a school in Zambia for eight months. And so I saw a lot of poverty firsthand there, whether in rural areas of sub-Saharan Africa or in inner city slums. Oh. Um, and so that kind of, I saw that firsthand and it was like that instilled in me or kind of reinforced in me, uh, like, I guess, desire to be working towards more economic justice in the world. So, yeah, I, yeah, that, so other than generosity, so I, mm. it's it's amazing because I've I've done several of these interviews so far, mm -hmm. and it's it's really interesting to me that the influence parents have had, mm -hmm. and so it's really neat to hear. Is there is there a moment? Is there a memory that's stuck in your head? Uh, specifically, you mentioned you know this this homeless house that your your parents kind of helped 
initiate and run and then your experiences in Zambia? Is there, is there a moment where you're like, wow, this is, this is different. This is, you know. So there's, I don't know if my dad will be happy with me saying this, but I'm <laughs> going to anyway. So uh, there was one moment when I was like, wow, where, you know, in the Bible it talks about tithing, right? Giving 10% of your money away. So my mom and dad would tithe. And, you know, my dad would talk about tithing on your gross, your gross income as opposed to your net income, i.e. before taxes. Tithe on that. And then I think they said, well, we're pretty well off. Like this tithe isn't even really hurting us financially. So above a certain income, they said, let's do a double tithe. And then um, at one point he was like, you know what? Like above a certain income, we're just going to give away 90% of our money. And then (laughs) that year, uh, one of my relatives died and left them quite a bit of money. And they gave away 90% of that because it was over the threshold. And I remember like listening to that and saying, firstly, well, that's my inheritance. What on earth are you (laughs) thinking, dad? (laughs) No, but uh, more seriously, yeah, that's just like, that was one very, very powerful like example of generosity that that's the kind of values I think they they instilled yeah. in me. So did you ever talk about it? No, or was it just really like he, they told, he told me that like one time we didn't really even like talk about it. It was more, and at the time I probably didn't even think about it, but now looking back and reflecting and thinking, why, why did I work at a nonprofit for seven years? Why am I working at a very mission driven startup right now? You know, making kind of financially dubious career choices and looking back, I think it's because of this value system that I have. And I think looking back, that was largely instilled by them. Yeah, that's great. So the value system, could you, could you define it? Um, I actually have folks on my team uh, sometimes write out their, their life principles. Mm-hmm. So one of my heroes, I've mentioned this before, is, is Colin Powell. And he has mm-hmm. kind of like these 13 principles mm. that help govern uh, decision-making in his life. Mm. Um, and so I actually have encouraged members of my team to kind of like, what are those principles that help mm. dictate your decisions or what you pursue in life? If you were able to distill a couple for me that you've learned over uh, over your life, mm. um, generosity obviously seems like one of them, but, but what are some others that have driven, you think, some of the decisions you've made? I think I would struggle to articulate it. Um, I think uh, from a career perspective, I think I've, I've always valued optimizing for learning um so that was one of the reasons i think i went into management consulting out of college um i mean it's probably (laughs) tough to tough to say there's much kind of save the world you know impact points uh working at oliver wyman but you know the learnings there were incredibly rich um both from the type of work and from the people so certainly you kind of optimizing for learning and then both at Kiva and at WeFunded, the learning has been super, super rich. Um, and then I feel like, especially going to Kiva and now at WeFunder, um, I, I would struggle to articulate this, but there's something around just like, I don't know, working towards a bigger, bigger mission than yourself. And so I, I get really, and we'll probably talk about this. I get really excited about the vision of, you know, Kiva and WeFunder as democratizing uh, finance and, uh, you know, enabling anyone to participate as an investor in startups or getting more capital flowing to women or founders of color. And that's like a bigger goal. I, I look at a lot of the challenges of 
the conventional financial system we have. It's, I think it's leading to a lot of inequality. It's, it's leading to a lot of kind of restriction of access to opportunity. Um, and so and kind of dedicating my career to working towards like changing, you know, that system for the better, like yeah. striving for more economic justice in our financial system. Um, and one thing that, uh, a third thing, maybe I'm just kind of, spitballing here <laughs> this isn't no, kind good. of you know very well thought through like colin powell's 13 principles but a third one would be um in the last few years since becoming a dad three and a half years ago to my daughter felicity now i have a son carlisle who's 18 months old um so in the last few years um you know just being present for them and there's a definite trade-off for me from a work-life balance perspective you know sure. we fund it could be all-consuming could be a hundred hour a week job easily you know but i've deliberately made a trade-off to you know spend make sure i'm home at 6 p.m to hang out with them before they go to bed so sure those would be three principles with that last one kind of coming coming in more in the last few years yeah well and i've even i think that can carry over into beyond a dad it might be something that's more prevalent but i think in our friendship for mm -hmm. the last couple of decades as you mentioned <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah but just being present with friends you know, mm -hmm. you, you're, you've been available if I'm in San Francisco or, mm -hmm. or wherever. Mm -hmm. um, I think presence is an important thing mm -hmm. just to be present with people. So mm -hmm. it can be at work, mm -hmm. present with the people you're working with, mm -hmm. present with your coworkers, present with your customers. Yeah. But I think that's a good principle. Yeah. The, and the Optimize for Learning is interesting because I, uh, I did want to dive into the Oliver Wyman a little bit because I remember mm -hmm. you and I talked offline about your shift and you know what you were doing at Oliver Wyman you know it mm -hmm. is an interesting path learning all these principles of generosity from your parents going to Zambia and teaching mm -hmm. among very impoverished communities mm -hmm. and then going into management consulting mm -hmm. so it's it's interesting to hear you say it was it was a great opportunity to learn and grow but then there was moment there was a point where you were you were doing lots and you mm -hmm. were actually doing really well at Oliver Wyman but mm -hmm. you were not fulfilled so yeah. maybe talk to me talk to me about the the transition from Oliver Wyman to Kiva. I know it was a sabbatical mm -hmm. where you took a time and they gave you opportunities to go and volunteer or work, uh, if you will, with a nonprofit, which kind of led you to Kiva. Mm -hmm. But what was going on in your life at that moment mm -hmm. and in your thinking uh, that has really kind of I think refined itself into what you articulated around democratizing capital mm -hmm. and access for for people everywhere. Yeah, I mean, I think um, the the lack of fulfillment only became apparent, I think, after I went to Kiva. So I did four years at Oliver Wyman out of college, and then I went to volunteer at Kiva for five months in the summer of 2009. Um, so, and that was just, you know, something that other people at Oliver Wyman had done. They had this scheme where you could go and volunteer for a nonprofit. They paid you like 40% of your salary um, while you were working there. Then you came back and you had to like, commit to another six months at Olive Wyman after you got back. So I got back and ended up doing another year and a half, but it was only going to Kiva and seeing the other side that kind of opened my eyes to, oh, wow, like, you know, um, I can, there's a world where I can have a job and, you know, be also surrounded by super smart, motivated, driven people like I was at Olive Wyman, um, but also have a little bit more of a work-life balance and also feel like the work I'm doing is, you know, really making a difference in the lives of low moderate income people around the world. Um, but I, I didn't really kind of acutely feel that I was missing that 
when I was working really long hours at Oliver Wyman because you're like on the treadmill, you're sure. getting promoted, you're getting a great salary, you know, and it kind of sucks you into that world. And it was only stepping out of that world for a few months mm. that then I was like, oh, wait, maybe I need to kind of rethink a little bit here. <laughs> um, and so then 18 months later, I left Oliver Wyman and w joined uh, Kiva full time. And by the way, like I love, I actually really like my time at Oliver sure. Wyman. Like not just from a learning perspective, but the people were amazing. Like the work was really, really interesting um, and varied. And um, so I have good things to say. A lot of people are pretty jaded, I think, after leaving management consulting, but I kind of enjoyed my time there. Well, it's interesting. I, uh, Drucker is quoted saying sometimes uh, there's this, what if we develop our people? A junior says, or a vice president yeah. came to him once. What if we develop our people and they leave? Mm -hmm. And Drucker is quoted as saying, well, what if we don't? And they stay. And, they stay? Mm -hmm. and so it's interesting. I think what a, what a neat... Uh, offering that Oliver Wyman right. had to even allow that yeah. um, to you for you to explore those things. And I, mean, I, I always wondered what the ROI on that program was. Yeah. It's like, cause quite a lot of people I think have my experience where they went to a, a nonprofit, let's say, and, and kind of said, Oh, actually I kind of prefer this lifestyle, sure. but then maybe that was the better thing for them anyway. So, yeah. Well, and I think, so talk to me going to Kiva, you were decently early on Kiva had exploded internationally, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. you, you kind of came in, um, and I think your story is unique and, and could be super helpful to some, some folks listening. Mm -hmm. You were, by and large, an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. So Kiva had been going internationally for, for some time, but you're the founder of the Kiva US, mm -hmm. uh, which was a brand new initiative, which kind of built within mm -hmm. this bigger nonprofit, mm -hmm. trying to explore, like, how do, how do we do this thing that we've been doing in emerging markets in, a, in a, our US context, of mm -hmm. our backyard, recognizing that many entrepreneurs that we see in our communities across the country still lack capital. Mm -hmm. um, what was it like? What were some of the lessons that you could point to that you learned? Um, because I think that's a unique experience. It's, mm -hmm. it's different than like, I've got an idea. I'm going to go raise some capital and start this company. Mm -hmm. You're resourced to a certain degree, but it, it probably has to come with its own challenges, trying to figure out the bureaucracy of, of what's already working and how to get attention on, on this new kind of incubated startup uh, within a company and how to how to merge the two over time? Yeah, I think there's there were definitely pros and cons of spinning up Kiva Zip, which later became Kiva US as part of a bigger nonprofit, right? Yeah. So on the pros side, you know, I always had a salary. Like I I probably couldn't have, I, or I probably wasn't like entrepreneurial enough or risk kind of, tolerant enough or you know financially solvent enough to just go and do that myself and like start it from scratch without like having a salary and so that that was huge you know or kiva's brand by that point kiva already had hundreds of thousands of users right um and super credible brand like bill clinton had already endorsed it had been on oprah you know so to start this crazy direct lending at 0% interest to small businesses in the US thing in itself would have been very, very hard. Like Kiva's brand certainly helped us to get in the door early on with nonprofits that are working in economic development around the country, right? Um, or to get Cory Booker to take notice sure. when we launched Kiva Newark. So, um, you know, we had an office, we had a, a, a lawyer who was incredible and, you know, knew the securities laws inside out and could advise us on the right path. Um, it, we had an engineering team that could build the website. Like Kiva's 
you know, one of Kiva's best ever engineers like built the Kivazip website in a couple of months. And like, if I'd had to go and try to find a co-founder and, you know, that, so there was many, many ways in which I think if we hadn't done it as part of Kiva, this thing never would have got off the ground. And then of course, there's some downsides as well. So you mentioned bureaucracy. A big one actually was kind of interesting was around the mission drift question. So mm. Kiva's mission was, it actually changed recently, but Kiva's mission originally was to connect people through lending to alleviate poverty. And those last words, alleviate poverty, most lenders on Kiva, most staff at Kiva, most stakeholders saw the poverty alleviation as international. We're lending to women in you know rural villages in Kenya or Cambodia, right? And so then we came along and said, well, we're going to alleviate poverty in the US. A lot of people said there is no poverty in the US. Uh. Or at least like you know, some of these borrowers that you see on the site, they look kind of like middle income white dudes like in San Francisco. That seems quite far away from Kiva's initial uh, mission. And so there were a lot of people who said, Kiva should not be doing this. We yeah. should stay focused on international poverty alleviation. So that was the mission drift question. And then, you know, from a business model perspective, um, the other the other difference, it wasn't just we were, we were doing Kiva in the US as opposed to international, but it was also we're lending directly to borrowers as opposed to through these microfinance institution intermediaries. Yeah. And so that was a new business model. And so that's essentially like if Safeway or you know Kroger starts to sell online or like encourage customers to to use the online store then you've got the store managers who are like no it's really important that customers come into the store because then they can feel the Kroger yeah. brand experience and so that was that was a and this this is um this tension of like an established business kind of almost like disrupting its own business model from within is being covered in the innovators dilemma is the kind of thing that makes it very very hard for established incumbents to kind of change the business model in this way. Yeah. And so that that made it hard. And I think there was always kind of right from the get-go kind of skepticism around, is this model going to work? And, um, you know, this is, it's quite an expensive, right all the way through the seven years I was there, right up until the end, there was a lot of kind of pushback on, well, this is a really expensive way for Kiva to do loans. Turns out it's a lot cheaper when actually the, the boots on the ground, like actually meeting the borrowers and processing repayments and doing the end, like, you know, service component is another organization, a third party microfinance institution. So if we're taking on that as well, well, that makes this model much, much more expensive for Kiva. So then the CFO is looking at it like, I don't know if we can afford to do this. Yeah. So those like constant tensions were, were, were prevalent kind of all throughout the seven years. And that was just, you know, quite... That was one of the the tough things. Yeah. Whereas now the difference that we fund, are, like everyone's rowing in the same direction, mm -hmm. everyone is aligned. There's no, you don't have to waste any energy kind of persuading people yeah. that this new direct program is a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Because everyone's just moving in the same direction, which just means you can move so much more quickly. So if you could go back to mm -hmm. early Kiva days, mm -hmm. would you do it again? Yeah, I would. To, for sure. I'm super proud of uh, what our team did um, for the seven years I was there. Um, what would you tell? I mean, so, because I, I think the, the challenge you brought up is, is a real one for many mm -hmm. larger corporations. So mm -hmm. Kiva at that point was more established. So mm -hmm. 
it's, it's just the struggle yeah. of trying to figure out how to be innovative, how to test new boundaries, how to provide more opportunities for entrepreneurs everywhere. Yeah. So it's, it's a real challenge. Are, is there any advice or? I actually, I actually think looking back the way that we did it was pretty good. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't change too much. And I, I would give a lot of credit to Matt Flannery, who was one of the co-founders of Kiva. And he, he really, I think, him and Premal Shah, another co-founder, were really the driving force for testing this more direct model with Kiva Zip. Um, and so I remember one meeting early on. So I'd just come out of management consulting, right? You know, management consulting is lots of meetings, lots of PowerPoint decks, lots of stakeholder engagement, right? Hey, let's get everyone around the table and build consensus, blah, blah, blah. You know, like you do in big companies. And so I was like doing a lot of this. We'd have a working group meeting on Kiva Zip every week and present a PowerPoint deck. And Matt was just like, and he's a founder, right? He's an entrepreneur, <laughs> way, way more of a founder than I will ever be. But he's just like, dude, you're having too many meetings, too many PowerPoint decks. I want you to like go into a silo, don't talk to anyone, get your head down and like move as quickly as you can. And, you know, <laughs> that then, you know, years later yeah. had ramifications in terms of like maybe trust and like people not feeling bored in. Sure. But I think that was brilliant advice. And if you're doing something kind of, you know, disruptive, um, potentially, you know, controversial, you've got to do that. So he advocated for that. He pushed for that. And we did that. And when we moved to that, that enabled us to move much, much more quickly. And then he would give us a ton of air cover. So if other people on the team were like, I don't really know what these Kiva Zip guys are doing, then Matt would like, you know, kind of say, oh, it's fine. Like, you know, I'm, I'm, he was like the champion yeah. as the CEO of Kiva, like giving us a lot of cover. Um, so that worked really well. And then he left um, and then it like, that became a little bit more challenging. We didn't have the air cover. Then we had a new CEO come in, Martin, and he, he again was like really enthusiastic about what we we're doing. He saw it was a great way to grow the Kiva lender base um, by these US borrowers, like bringing their own networks to lend to them. Uh, and, and so having that air cover that then en- enables you to kind of not worry all the time about trying to communicate what you're doing or getting people on side and enabling you to execute and move as quickly as possible, that's, that's the critical thing. If you don't have that, then you spend all your time trying to like persuade everyone. They're probably never going to be persuaded because if the store manager at Kroger's end of year bonus is tied to sales in store, then the last thing he wants to do is like see more revenue flow through the online channel, right? Yeah. So you got to have the air cover. You, you kind of got to silo it off and encourage that kind of disruptive intrapreneurial team to move as quickly as they can. Hmm. So then you go to WeFunder. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've got a quote from you here and it says, I live in the heart of Silicon Valley, which you still do and you have for a while, in the era of technological revolution. I look around me and see affluence unparalleled in the history of the world. This is an eloquent co- quote. I know. It's really, I found it to be... It <laughs> you sure great. it was me? Yeah, it was you. <laughs> yeah. uh, so wow. talk to me a little bit about that quote, because I think transitioning to WeFunder, because mm-hmm. I feel like what you've been focused on as a person, your worldview and, and what you're about, has really kind of taken shape through your experiences at Kiva and now at WeFunder. So... Talk to me. Can you expand on that quote a little bit? Like, what do, what do you, as you juxtapose what you see and what you're experiencing in the valley, this affluence with the poverty mm-hmm. and the uh, inequity mm-hmm. that exists? Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I think probably the next part of that quote, I can't remember where that was from, but probably the next part of that would have been, you know, we're in the, like, 
Silicon Valley in the early 21st century is like where it's at, right? It's like, this is a century of technology. Silicon Valley is the epicenter of that. You got all these IPO millionaires and billionaires. This is an affluent place. And there's a lot of homelessness in San Francisco. And if you look at most metrics of economic inequality in the US, by the way, globally, we're doing better now than we were a hundred years ago, right? A lot of people in China have pulled themselves out of poverty. India, Af Africa, South America, Af even Africa now is like starting to, to grow economically, I think. So globally, there's actually some positive indicators. But if you look in the US, you know, median household wealth has been flat for decades. Like CEO pays up a thousand percent in the last 30 years, like pay of the average workers up like 10, 20 percent, like more wealth being concentrated at the top and life expectancy is now declining. Suicide rates are up, you know, um, so there's a lot of big problems around inequality. And so, yeah, both at Kiva and at WeFunder, I guess I've um, been excited about these like democratic funding models, crowdfunding, like crowdfunding of zero interest microloans at Kiva, crowdfunding of equity and debt investments at, at WeFunder. Like I, I kind of am hopeful that just as in politics, if you go from like a monarchy or an aristocracy where there's like gatekeepers that are controlling decision-making, then you go to a more democratic political system where people have a vote. Individual people have a vote and initially is men and then women and African-Americans, you know, more and more people are getting the vote. Hopefully over time, that's leading to more equitable um, political outcomes that's the high level, very abstract vision for uh, finance, where if you can take the, the financial power out of the hands of gatekeepers and in, empower ordinary people to make small investments in entrepreneurs in their own community, maybe we can get to more equitable allocations of capital. Maybe we can get to more, you know, kind of positive social outcomes in our financial system. It's quite, I don't know, it's quite abstract, but... And, and what in your mind, what does that, what does that lead us towards? Like, uh, so it it more equitable outcomes equals what in our communities? Mm -hmm. Um, I think you know some examples would be more more. Uh, right now, there's a cycle, right? There's a kind of a bit of a vicious cycle where, you know, let's let's say African-American household wealth is 10% that of white household wealth, right? So it's then harder for African-American um, entrepreneurs to start businesses because, you know, they don't have like friends and family networks to tap into for that initial capital. You know, most VCs are white men and so maybe it's harder and not much capital is going, if you just look at the numbers, right? Like 1% of venture capital went to African-American founders last year, I think, versus like 11, 12% of the population. So, you know, it's harder for African-American entrepreneurs to access capital. I think it's a similar similar story on the commercial loan side. Um, and part of it is a supply issue probably, but there's also been some pretty robust studies done, I think. Um, I think NCRC did a study where they had like a black small business or pretend small business owner go into a bank with exactly the same business plan as a white pretend small business owner and the white small business owner was like encouraged to apply and go through the process and the black business owners were not. Mm. So it's not just a supply issue. But so then it's harder for African-American entrepreneurs to access capital. Then it's harder for them to build and grow their businesses. So then 
there's less kind of growing businesses that are owned by African-American entrepreneurs. And that means that wealth creation through entrepreneurship and through, through small business ownership is more difficult, which then means it's harder for African-Americans to build wealth in that way. And so then the cycle persists, right? Yeah. And so, um, yeah, the, the idea of like both Kiva, we found a democracy applied to finance is if by enabling more black Americans to become investors, you know, more women to become investors uh, than today, then they will fund more black entrepreneurs, more women entrepreneurs. That will mean that those entrepreneurs are able to build businesses and those businesses will create wealth for them. And gradually we can chip away at this wealth and equity where currently I think like black kind of household wealth is projected to go to zero and I don't know the date. It's like a few decades into the future, but that's, so it's like more capital flowing to businesses, give more entrepreneurs of color or low income entrepreneurs a shot, enable them to create wealth in that way and kind of over the long run start to chip away at economic inequality. And obviously investment and entrepreneurship and startups, small business, that's like one component there's many many other components of wealth inequity right like housing and criminal justice reform and you know um, money in politics and healthcare and blah 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 um this is only one aspect of that but that's the aspect i've been focused on now both akiva and we found it for the last decade i've got another another good quote of yours Uh oh i know it's good America's finance system can be a mechanism for reinforcing the interconnections mm. between the people that fuel it. If that's true, then perhaps that system can help bring people together rather than drive them apart. Mm-hmm. Maybe our economic <laughs> transactions can shine a light on the fact that we are all human beings, mm. people who want the best for our children <laughs> and our world. I'm and very, I, I think, I'm very idealistic. <laughs> well, but I think the reason I brought that quote up right now is uh, earlier when you were talking about the mission of Kiva was to connect mm. people. Mm-hmm. And as I'm hearing you talk about the the role of of, of wealth and business, there there is a there's a theme I'm picking up on as it relates to the role of business in community, mm-hmm. uh, the role of money uh, to connect people. Mm-hmm. Some would say that's not that's not the role of business. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously there's 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 counter narratives as as it relates to like profit and and purpose. Um, how how would you respond to someone that uh, that disagrees that says you know what it, it I hear what you're saying, um, but that's what we have social services for. Mm-hmm. That's what uh, the government is for, um, and. Business, business should just focus on making products and making money. Mm-hmm. Um, what what would you say to that person? Because you know you're in the valley, uh, and I think sometimes there is a there is a valley bubble. Mm. Uh, and I live in Louisville, Kentucky, and so you know there are parts of our country where this this notion of kind of profit and purpose being mm-hmm. not opposed to one another, but actually something we can pursue in unison Mm -hmm. is still a a questionable thing. Yeah. I mean, I think there there are two 
elements of that quote. There was one around like our finance system kind of bringing people together. Mm-hmm. And then there's another of our finance system kind of having a, a social impact or a, a double bottom line or kind of, you know, looking beyond kind of financial profit. So on the second question, I mean, I don't know. I I just, yeah, I for me, like it's important that, you know, we're building a world that is, uh, you know, good, <laughs> a good world and, you know, looking after people and not cutting them aside and looking after our environment and not um, trashing that. And, uh, you know, if, um, if, if business and the market in quotes is driving us in a direction that is, uh, you know, having very negative uh, outcomes in, in a lot of areas, then like a higher GDP growth rate, I don't think is like enough of a, uh, you know, kind of comp- compensation for that. I don't think GDP growth should be the goal, actually. Mm. Um, I think we should have a broader kind of set of indicators around, uh, you know, whether we are kind of progressing as a society, which might be median wealth, as uh, you know, or median income as well as mean income. GDP is obviously based on mean income, you know, or it might be... Um, you know, life expectancy, or it might be, um, you know, substance abuse metrics or, um, you know, mental health indicators. Um, I'm sure, you know, I don't know what, what all the metrics should be, but I just pretty passionately believe that, you know, we should be kind of moving in that direction. We fund as a public benefit corporation, we're a B Corp. So I feel there is, there's more of a movement right now from like 20, 30 years ago. I think there's more of a movement. I feel like we're on the right side of a trend here, especially like millennial generation seems to be trends around conscious consumerism. So I'm optimistic we're moving in the right direction. The other piece, the the connection piece, that's why I was joking that I'm like super idealistic (laughs) about this stuff. (laughs) But you know, that was like, I remember one, one example on Kiva where, you know, we had this like farmer in rural Arkansas he was like raising Kiva. I would, you know, statistically probably like a Trump, a Trump voter, you know, and this was at the time I was writing this blog at the time of like, you know, Trump and as like very feeling politically polarized in America. Right. And there were lenders, you know, kind of loony liberal lenders in San Francisco, like, <laughs> you know, lending to this uh, redneck farmer in rural Arkansas. Right. And, and then vice versa. Right. And I just thought that was really a cool example of how, you know, normally if, if, if the finance system we have is like impersonal institutions and like impersonal transactions, then if you actually can see who you're lending to and there's that like human connection there, then that's a, that's a new financial system at Kiva Now We Funder where you're actually increasing human connectedness in the finance system that we're reimagining. And that's really cool. And I thought maybe there'll be some kind of cool side benefits to come out of that. Um, it Again, kind of abstract. <laughs> very Well, but uh, I think it, it does connect to the first question. Yeah. I think ultimately when we connect as humans, and if we think about the role of business, mm. it's really seeing, seeing the humanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think, you know, as a business owner, uh, profits are, profits are not evil. Mm-hmm. but at what expense? And so mm-hmm. I think as you're articulating, like how do we think about GDP? How do we think about mm-hmm. what the metrics on success are? Um, you know, we, we employ people, mm-hmm. you know, we have customers that are people mm-hmm. purchase goods from suppliers that are people. Mm-hmm. And I think when we can factor that right. value back into the equation, mm-hmm. 
how might that change our understanding of profit? Right. And is it extractive? Mm-hmm. Uh, or are we actually trying to do something that's additive? Mm-hmm. Um, and so th- I think the, the notion of, of humanity and connection, uh, when we can see the other mm-hmm. for what they are, um, whether we disagree on X, Y, or Z mm-hmm. or not, um, that, that should, shouldn't that be the role of, uh, of communities in business? Yeah. Something like that. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, so you're now a WeFunder. You've mm-hmm. got this laser focused vision. Mm-hmm. What, what are you excited about? And if you could, because, um, I think you're, you're pretty good at this, like, Five years from now, ten years from now, mm-hmm. what do you hope WeFunder is accomplishing? Where, do, uh, as in its role, you know, as a public benefit corporation, lined up behind this notion of democratizing access to capital for entrepreneurs across the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what do you hope WeFunder is able to accomplish um, mm-hmm. in that time frame to really see the needle move towards uh, towards this connectedness that you talk about? Mm-hmm. Five things off the top of my head. One, um, you know, obviously a lot bigger than today. We did about 40, 50 million of investment volume last year, which is a drop in the ocean. So obviously we want to be a lot bigger, having grown a lot. Um, and that means essentially the result of that is more investment capital flowing to early stage entrepreneurs. And is that more just validation is, from your perspective? Like more money just means there's the validation of, of uh, the platform and, and just crowdfunding in general? It does, but I think the goal for me is I think we as a company think we should give more chances to founders throughout America, probably the world, but let's start with America. Um, So right now, there's not enough capital going to startups. There should be more businesses starting up. If you look at like, you know, the, the stats, there's been a decline in small business like creation in America over the last few decades. Probably that's caused by lack of capital, um, at least in part. And so if we can get more capital flowing to startups, this is just going to do good things. More people, you know, innovating, like on this technology that's going to tackle climate change or, you know, like creating jobs in their community or even just like, you know, having a shot at being an entrepreneur and that like teaches you some great life lessons and like makes you into a better human, (laughs) you know? So it's like, about giving more business owners, more founders their shot than is happening today. And, right. and I think like most, if you, if you, if you look, take a step back, like, you know, probably the market where the market is at today in terms of like capital going to entrepreneurs is below where you would ideally want to be as a society. I don't have much data on that. It just feels, again, if you look at the stats of small business creation, it feels like there should be more capital going to small businesses and startups from a kind of socially maximizing like perspective. The second thing is like breaking that down. So, you know, right now, 2% of VC capital last year, I think went to women led companies, 1% to African American companies, 25% went to the 47 states that aren't New York, California, or Massachusetts, right? So not just more capital going to startups in aggregate, but kind of a better or a more equitable allocation by ethnicity, gender, geography. That's the second thing. A third thing, this is even more ambitious of a, a goal, I think, because that's that's mostly around like capital, 
getting more capital flowing to startups, it's easy to see, okay, WeFund is a crowd equity crowdfunding platform. Okay, yeah, getting more capital flowing, that makes sense. The third thing is like actually strengthening entrepreneurs and founders and small business entrepreneurial ecosystems beyond just the money. <laughs> so that's like the partnership we have with you guys, with the venture partners. You know, we do dinners at WeFunder regularly where we have founders come in. We've done XX accelerator programs for immigrant founders. We went on a workaway trip to Hawaii where we took a bunch of founders to Hawaii and we're working out of a mansion on like accelerating the startup just for a week with some like incredible like YC alumni mentors. So we don't know how we're gonna do that. If we would, I mean, we're a product company, like our CEO Nick is a product guy and brilliant. So we got to try and figure out how we're going to productize that. But, you know, that, that would be a third goal. A fourth goal then would be on the investor side. So we, when we talk about democratizing access to investing, what that means is like, it used to be until May 2016 when the SEC rolled out Title III of the Jobs Act, it used to be you had to be an accredited investor to invest in startups. You had to be a millionaire basically, or a billionaire. And now anyone can invest in startups. And there's a healthy discussion about whether that's a good thing um, or not. But you know, I think we all working at WeFunder believe that is a good thing. And so enabling more people to participate as an angel investor you know, and hopefully earning them a return so they're able to build wealth um, it will be the fourth thing. And then the fifth thing kind of related is, um, you know, in, by enabling anyone to participate as an angel investor, getting more people involved with entrepreneurship in their communities, you know, because again, we, we like entrepreneurship. We think We think that's cool and we think like, if more and more citizens in America are thinking about where their dollars are going and they're not just like parking it in Starbucks on the stock market and the money's flowing out of their community, but they're investing it in this business in their community, or like maybe they are passionate about space. I met with a friend um, for lunch the other day and she said her son is like, you know, he's 17 and he's really passionate about space. And I was like, well, we had two two companies um, in the space sector fundraising and we fund it right now. He should go and look at them and consider investing in them. And maybe then he invests and then goes and does an internship with them. Like the whole idea of being an angel, I invested in Chattanooga FC. They raised like 850 grand on WeFunder from three and a half thousand Chattanoogans and me. And I, me. And Bryce Butler. So I invested 125 bucks and now I'm an owner of this soccer club, you know? I don't know if I'll make a return. I didn't look at the financials, but I just think it's really cool to be an owner of a soccer club and they're coming to San Francisco, uh, actually to Oakland to play a game in a couple of weeks. And I'm gonna go and cheer them on and I'm an owner. My name's gonna be on their shirt. <laughs> they had their shirt, you know this? Their oh, know, shirt's got all the like names of the investors on it. And so Did that's- you buy one so you can wear it in Oakland? Yeah, I'm going to. <laughs> and so that, you know, so that's like being an investor is, is cool being an angel investor is cool like you get to hang out with these smart founders you get to learn about these things and like that in itself irrespective of the financial outcomes i think we think is a good thing if more american citizens are like participating in you know entrepreneurship in this way that's going to be a good outcome what are some challenges so these those are some lofty goals and i think um they're they're really good and they're tied really nicely to to the notion of of connecting people. Mm -hmm. um, so, but what are some of the challenges that you think we still face uh, in kind of fuller adoption or understanding of the opportunity that uh, that's before us of of WeFunder investment crowdfunding? Sure. Um, so, a lot of challenges. 
um, it's really hard. I think what we're doing, we're essentially like totally reimagining the paradigm, right? Mm -hmm. This is really hard. Um, a lot of challenges. I think right now, if you're, you know, on the, the rocket ship growth path, you just graduate from Y Combinator, you know, you got like all the VCs in Silicon Valley throwing million dollar checks at you. You're not going to go with WeFunder, right? It's like, first, first of all, like no one's really done that before. Uber didn't do that. Google didn't do that. Facebook didn't do that. Airbnb didn't do that, right? They went the VC path. So you're like the convention, the paradigm is like, I'll go the VC path too. So, and then, so, so that's, then it's basically harder for us to get these like rocket ship, like companies onto WeFunder because we're kind of just a new thing that seems risky and unknown. And so, and until we get those rocket ship companies, then, you know, it's going to be harder to generate the investor returns that these top VCs are getting, right? Because in venture capital investing, a lot of the returns are from the power law of like the, the one company that like has the billion dollar IPO, right? So, so it's both a question of like, how do we attract more and more founders and um, better and better founders? And then also it, it related, like the follow on is how do we generate strong returns for investors? Um, so those, I mean, it's both sides of the marketplace. Sure. Now, the cool thing is that over time, right, the network effects will kick in. So it's just like Uber, the more drivers there are, better it is for passengers, the more passengers, better it is for drivers, right? With WeFunder, we, we launch more founders, great companies, big audiences of customers. They recruit those customers to invest in them. They now have WeFunder investor accounts. We can market to them other opportunities. So then more investors means founders should be able to raise more money on the platform. If founders, if that means it's more attractive to founders, then we get better founders. Better founders then means it's more attractive for investors. So again, I think we're on the right side of a trend. Like you can see how the growth on both sides of the marketplace over time is just going to really strengthen this ecosystem. Um, but right now we're kind of in that grind where it's it's yeah. hard to like get it to the next level. Yeah. But it's growing. Like it we is. roughly doubled last year. Um, we plan on even accelerating that um, this year. So That's great. we're on the right path. If you would like to learn more about Johnny and WeFunder and to democratically participate in the startup universe through investing, check out WeFunder.com and follow Johnny on Twitter at Johnny C. Price. Well, folks, that's a wrap for season one. I hope you've enjoyed these amazing stories. If you liked what you've heard, drop us a review, subscribe, and stay tuned for season two. Check out our work at accessventures.org. I'm Bryce Butler. Thanks for listening. <laughs>